Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download. Tonight on The Readout. Mr. Trump has repeatedly and consistently misrepresented and inflated his, the value of his assets. And before he takes the stand, I am certain that he will engage in name calling and taunts and race baiting and call this a witch hunt. But at the end of the day, the only thing that matters are the facts and the numbers. And numbers, my friends, don't lie. And Attorney General Tish James was right about Trump. Now, that's half hard at this point. On the witness stand today in his civil fraud trial, Trump was belligerent, showing his usual lack of respect for the rule of law and the people who administer it. Also tonight, how Trump will be using this trial and his future trials as a campaign platform. Plus, new reporting on what Trump might do on day one if he returns to the White House, including possibly invoking the Insurrection Act. And the panic amongst some Democrats about President Biden sagging poll numbers now that we're just one year away from Election Day. I'm Jason Johnson, and for Joy Reid, we begin tonight with Donald Trump taking the stand in court as a defendant. The first former U.S. president to do so in more than 100 years. And I need to put this in context for you. The last time a president had to stand in court Trump's father, Fred, had just started their family crime business, Trump and Sons. The former president testified today in the $250 million civil fraud case brought by New York Attorney General Tish James. It's the trial that could collapse his family's business and the real estate brand that built his reputation and fortune. Which is why today, a very angry and theatrical Trump lashed out at everyone from the judge presiding over the case to the state attorney general seeking damages in the trial. Turns out... There aren't two Trumps, no social media version versus a courtroom Trump. Rather, it's the one Donald Trump. And we all know that one too well because he was definitely on one. Sounding just as he does at those rallies or in his rants on that great value Twitter thing that he tweets on. Except this time, those posts are unfurling in real time in Manhattan Supreme Court. It was a contentious day on the witness stand. Trump drew multiple warnings from the trial judge for veering off topic and criticizing the proceedings. Judge, uh, judge Engeron also told Trump's lawyer to control him and that this isn't a political rally. After taking the stand for nearly four hours, Trump addressed the cameras, calling the case a disgrace. To think that we're being sued and spending all this time and money and you have people being killed all over the world that this country could stop. With inflation and all of the other problems that this country has, I think it's a disgrace. I think it's a very sad day for America. But anyway, this is a case that should have never been brought, and it's a case that should be immediately dismissed. While Trump called for the case to be dismissed immediately, New York Attorney General Tish James told reporters that the case will go on. He rambled. He hurled insults. Um, but we expected that. At the end of the day, um, the documentary evidence demonstrated that, in fact, he falsely inflated his assets to basically enrich himself and his family. He continued to in persistently engage in fraud. Um, the numbers don't lie, 
and Mr. Trump obviously can engage in all of these distractions, but I will not be bullied. I will not be harassed. The show, the after party and the hotel magnate is far from over. Ivanka Trump is set to take the stand on Wednesday. Joining me now is Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal analyst who was in court today. David K. Johnson, distinguished visiting lecturer at Syracuse University College of Law, who has been reporting on Trump's financial nonsense for decades. And Mary McCord, former acting assistant attorney general, MSNBC and legal analyst and co-host of the MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. I have some great guests today. So, Lisa, I will start with you. You were in court today. This is the part that galls me. I look, I've seen plenty of crazy short court shows and, and, and you know, I, I watched all 12 versions of Law and Order. What was the feeling like in the courthouse as the former twice impeached president is yelling and screaming and threatening people? Were were folks used to it at this point? Were they just kind of nonplussed? Uh, what was it like in the courtroom? I wouldn't say people were nonplussed. I mean, Jason, the version of Trump that you showed in one of his hallway press conferences as you were talking about the case today, that was a much quieter, calmer, controlled Trump than the one we saw in the courtroom. So imagine that between the vitriol of his words and the emphasis in his tone, I actually think that there was a chill over much of the courtroom. Nobody had ever seen a witness behave like this, much less behave that way toward a judge and an elected official sitting in the courtroom. It was really, and I hate to overuse this word because I use it every time I report on this case, unprecedented in certainly New York Supreme Court and in my experience of court watching and litigating. Uh, Mary, I, I wanna ask you a question. Also just, I always ask this strategically. I understand that the goal of of the Trump campaign and, and Trump Incorporated and everything about his family is always really about drawing attention, right? It's like a spoiled child. I, whatever attention I get is good attention. But usually there's some idea that this intention uh, is ingratiating him to someone or helping him raise money. What strategically is the value of, of acting up in court the way he is? Does, does he think it's gonna help him in the trial? Does he think it helps him with people on the outside? What's he trying to do here, Mary? So I'm never sure whether things with Mr. Trump are actually deliberate strategy or just his attorneys trying to kind of make the best they can uh, with an uncontrollable client. And I think maybe this is a little bit of both. I mean, clearly he's a client that is you know, almost impossible for a lawyer to control. We know that both from his conduct outside the courtroom as well as his conduct inside the courtroom. But also when you have a client like that who engages in these kind of outbursts, personal attacks on the judge, personal attacks on others in the courtroom um, and really kind of going on and doing speeches, et cetera. You know, sometimes part of the strategy can be to see if the judge won't crack down and end up committing reversible error because judges are human beings. And the more annoyed and frustrated they get, the more they feel like they don't have control of their courtroom anymore and that the defendant is you know, taking advantage and using it for his own purposes and disobeying the rules, uh, not listening to the judge's rulings. Sometimes judges can, you know, react and make rulings that later, later can be subject to reversal. And so to the extent there's a strategy there, that certainly could be part of the strategy. But I also think it's just Mr. Trump's just almost impossible to to shut up as the judge found today. Mayor, I want to follow up with this because, look, I, look, I, 
watch basketball, I watch hockey, you know, sometimes you have the hockey goon, right? It's the person who's supposed to go in there, anger the other team, make their star player make a mistake. But in the case of Trump, everyone sort of knows that their goal, you know, they're acting in bad faith. So what what would an actual mistake be? I mean, if the judge yells at him, would that necessarily uh, be a justification for throwing everything out the window? I mean, it doesn't seem to me like bad behavior is going to make a bunch of professionals make equally bad choices. Or am I wrong about this? No, I think there's a lot of leeway, of course. And the judge, I think the thing here that's the judge really has the ability to do and do without much risk of this being reversible error is he can make his own credibility assessments of Mr. Trump. And we know from when Mr. Trump had to testify a week or so ago, sort of unexpectedly after he made another attack on the judge's law clerk, and the judge didn't believe him. He found him completely incredible. Mr. Trump tried to claim he wasn't talking about the law clerk. He was talking about Michael Cohen, but the context and the words made that, you know, really just unbelievable. And the judge can make those credibility determinations based on Mr. Trump's deflecting and his attacks and his, you know, telling the judge himself that uh, he had called Mr. Trump a a fraud. All of those things can be read into by the judge to contribute to him making a credibility finding. And when judges make findings of facts based on judging the credibility of witnesses who appear in front of them, um, those are almost never reversible. The judge has a lot of discretion there. Now, if he were to do some other, and he can even draw adverse in- inferences, and he mentioned that at one point today, if Mr. Trump just refuses to ask answer a question, he can draw an adverse inference, and there's case law supporting that. So I think that this judge, he's conscious of uh, not wanting to do something that would be reversible, um, and so you know, I don't think, notwithstanding that lots of people like to talk about him throwing Mr. Trump in jail, I think that's probably unlikely, and he didn't do it today. So, David, I got to ask you this. First off, I always say, uh, I hope you're engaging in self-care, because you've been following this man for 30 years, and I can't imagine what it's like to have been just studying Trump and all of his criminal, corrupt, terrible personal behavior for all this time. But you know, I want to talk a little bit about sort of one of the main lies here, with Trump trying to explain why his 10,000-square-foot Trump Tower apartment was listed as 30,000 square feet in a statement to financial condition. I, I asked why the valuation was too high. Trump said a broker assessed the total total area as 30,000 square feet, and I have access to the roof. And when you add the roof, you're not that far off. He said, I see how it was done. Telling the court they took 10,000 per floor times three. It didn't take out the elevator and other things. Look, I, this, this is the only way I can look at this. And, I, and I'm confused. This would be akin to me saying that, you know, because I'm in the lounge at the airport, I actually own the jets on the tarmac, right? That's as ridiculous as this is. But, but David, my question for you is, isn't this the kind of lying that he's always engaged in? I mean, this is a guy who pretended to be other people on the phone when he did interviews. So even though we're focused on this particular thing, this is just par for the course with Trump, right? All of this fits a pattern of Donald's life. He's a child. He believes that he is special, that the rules don't apply to him. And one of the basic questions in this case is, well, if your financial statements are not to be believed, and then why did you create them? Why did you go to the trouble of having them created at all if they're meaningless? Uh, Donald is was trying very hard today to you know make a campaign speech to create things that will he believes will help him with the voters. 
And the reality is uh, Donald has always lied, cheated, and stolen from people. He's hired illegal immigrants from Poland to work for him. He has the only casino case in Atlantic City, cheating a customer, Donald Trump's casino. He was in bed up to his eyeballs with one of the biggest drug traffickers in the United States. He had children gambling in his casinos, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds. And so to Donald, he can do no wrong. It's not possible because he's special. And of course, he should not just be president. He should be, as he's planned all along, to be our dictator because no one else is competent in Donald's mind. David, I want to ask this. I want you to jump ahead. We're doing we're doing back to the future, right? It's November, first, second week of November in 2024. Okay. How many of these trials have resulted and a conviction for Trump. Let's just jump ahead. I mean, when we look at this case and we look at some of the others, when you look at his past history, because usually in the past he's been able to buy people off or, or threaten people or get out of cases or pay somebody off, how many convictions do you think he has by November of 2024? Well, the most important one and the easiest case to prove is the Mar-a-Lago documents case. And clearly that will not be a trial because he's got a judge who has openly expressed her bias in said he should be treated as special, violating her right. oath of office. But the Washington, D.C. case over the insurrection uh, almost certainly will have come to a conclusion by then. And Fonnie Willis's case should have come to a conviction uh, to, uh, by then to a conclusion. And the Fonnie Willis case matters because if Trump gets back to the White House, he can't pardon his way out of that. He can't do anything about it. Uh, But I don't think that Alvin Bragg's case uh, will be done by then. He's made it clear he's sort of stepping back and letting others proceed first. Lisa Rubin, David K. Johnson and Mary McCord, thank you so much for starting us off on the show today. Up next on The Readout, it's getting harder and harder to tell the difference between a Trump courtroom appearance and a campaign rally. Well, there's fewer Confederate flags. What that could mean for the 2024 election when The Readout continues, Jason Johnson. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Today, Donald Trump delivered all the makings of a standard MAGA rally, minus the Confederate flags and some of the guns. He had several attacks against government officials with phrases like witch hunt, election interference, and political hacks. A couple of off-topic rants and the unfounded claim that he's worth Billions and billions of dollars. Thank you, Dr. Evil. Except Trump wasn't speaking at a rally. He was testifying before a judge in a civil trial in New York, 
where he's accused of fraudulently inflating the value of his company's assets. Even though Judge Arthur Juran directly told him this is not a political rally, this is a courtroom, Trump seems to think that it can be both. And as we head into an election year where Trump is likely to be the Republican nominee for president, as well as a defendant in multiple criminal trials, it appears that what we saw today is just the beginning of his latest strategy used the witness stand as a campaign platform. Joining me now to discuss this is Tara Setmeyer, senior advisor for the Lincoln Project and former GOP communications director. Tara, it's so great to talk to you tonight uh, on the readout. It, here's the thing. Everyone is going to be riveted watching these trials next year. That's what's going to happen. We know it. It's it's going to be, you know, the sort of big story of the summer. Right. And, and that tends to happen because, hey, during the summer, during election years is not necessarily that interesting anyway. Is there a belief amongst Republicans, right, strategically comms people that he can turn trials that are ostensibly about his corruption and violation of the principles of this country into good press? Is that even possible or is that just a crazy theory within Trump world? No, I think it's viable for them because Donald Trump has been rewarded for his bad behavior over and over again since he entered politics. The only time he was repudiated is when Joe Biden beat him for the presidency. Um, why wouldn't he? He's had cover. He can use whatever platform he wants. He can try and, and make the courtroom a campaign rally. And Regardless of whether the facts bear out against him or not, he'll have his surrogates, particularly uh, elected officials in the Republican Party, continuing to spread his falsehoods and lies. I mean, you have a MAGA Speaker of the House now who has a platform right. as well. So it's not a crazy theory to those of us who live on Earth Two, which seems to be the the normie place, right? Because Earth One is now mm -hmm. dominated by MAGA uh, crazies. But those of us who live in the in in the real world. We look at this and go, well, how is this possible? He's on trial for 91 different uh, criminal counts in a courtroom. This should be disqualifying. His behavior is petulant. He looks like a child when he behaves like this, attacking the judge and spewing these lies. But his supporters and his followers and his enablers in the Republican Party amplify this and give him cover. So why wouldn't he continue to do this? I live on Earth, too, where John Kerry actually won in 2004 and Obama's just <laughs> running for the first time now. That's that's the world I live in. For me, it's Mitt Romney won in 2012 and we wouldn't have Donald Trump. So <laughs> either, one, either one is a better option than, than having Trump. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the other people who are running. I want to play some of this sound. Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson being booed in Florida and get your thoughts on the other side. Yeah. Well, now it feels like home. Thank you all very much. As someone who's been in the courtroom for over 25 years as a federal prosecutor, and also in defending some of the most serious federal criminal cases, I can say that there is a significant likelihood that Donald Trump will be found guilty by a jury on a felony offense next year. That may or may not happen before you vote in March. Tara, I, I have to say this. I want to focus first on Chris Christie. When he came into this race, he thought he was going to 
shake. He thought he was going to be Chris Lee in Atlanta. He was just going to come in and, and shake things up and, and everything else like that. It didn't really work out for him, right? He is now the person who gets booed all the time. But he's taken that heat from a lot of other Republicans who are thinking, maybe I'll be the brave one, too. My question for you is, is anyone else, I mean, all the rest of these candidates are doing so poorly against Trump. Is anyone else going to try and step in and add to the criticism that Chris Christie has had of, 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 of Trump as the sort of presumptive nominee? Or are they still going to be playing in these sort of spaces of, of Ramosway and, and DeSantis of thinking, well, maybe one day Trump will stumble on his own and I can step in? There have been virtually zero profiles and courage in the era of Trumpism. Why would they step out now? If they were going to do that, they would have done it by now. And it's obvious that they're uninterested in either doing the right thing or standing up to Donald Trump because they've all they've already demonstrated they're too craven, too craven politically to do so. I mean, we've been wishing those of us who are politically homeless and right of center like myself have been wishing that people in the Republican Party would have taken Chris Christie's stance from the very beginning. Chris Christie should have taken that stance from the very beginning. We may not have Donald Trump now, but now that they've decided that it's politically advantageous for them and also the country almost lost right. its democracy on January 6th. So hmm, maybe this guy is an existential threat. We need to step up. Now they want to, but there's only a handful. And unfortunately, you see the way the Republican uh, primary voters have reacted to right. this. Um, they're uninterested in it. They're okay with an evil sociopathic authoritarian who wants to tear up the Constitution getting reelected. And the Democrats need to face that fact and start pushing back aggressively, making the comparison between what a Biden presidency looks like and be reminded what a Trump presidency looked like and ask the American people and challenge them aggressively to make that choice. It's a binary choice. It's either America or Trump, period. I, I want to follow that up, Tara, because this, this has been my philosophy all along. When you look at, say, the bad poll numbers that Joe Biden has right now, I have been saying as a political scientist and somebody who pays attention to this and teaches this sort of stuff, I was like, yes, all of that is in a vacuum. People can dislike right. Joe Biden now, but after eight months of looking at him versus Trump, he's going to look a lot better. Is that how you see it? Or as a former Republican sort of political Ronin right now, do you think this is a really <laughs> dangerous time for Joe Biden? I think it's a dangerous time for America. I mean, obviously, no campaign wants to see poll numbers like that. But we also know those of us in political science understand that we're a year away. And that's a, an eternity in politics, right? I mean, George Bush, Clinton, uh, Obama, they all had bad poll numbers going a year before their reelection and they got reelected. So right. everyone needs to calm down. And but but I, my warning to Democrats stands, they must aggressively get in front of this and stop letting Republicans set the narrative about Joe Biden. Is Joe Biden old? Yes, he is. But I'd rather have someone that's old and experienced who loves this country and is good and decent than someone who is also old and a sociopath who wants to tear up the Constitution. Um, you know, start using Trump's own people talking about the election and how it was the most legitimate election in history. Start taking Trump's right. old people, own people and putting their words out there. But they have to be unified and disciplined to beat this back because the authoritarian creep in this country, that's what people need Is to there. be worried about, the normalization of this. And that's, I think, what they, they need to focus on the most. That's the most dangerous. Tara Setmeyer. Tara Setmeyer, thank you so much for joining us tonight on The Readout. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Up next, 
Donald Trump is making no secret about his plans for a possible second term in office. We'll talk about why any and all Americans need to make sure that doesn't happen. This is Jason Johnson on The Readout. We'll be right back. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Don't look now, but there's some new polling out from the New York Times and Siena College that shows Donald Trump leading in the battleground states he needs to win the presidency a year from now. What does Trump want in that second term? Well, it's, it's not a secret. His campaign and his allies at the Heritage Foundation have been working for years on all of that. It's called Project 2025, a raft of policy proposals that would gut multiple agencies and give Trump unfettered dictatorial powers. According to the Washington Post, once elected, Trump will gut the Department of Justice, fill it with sycophants, and use them to punish anybody who opposed him. The Post reports that, in private, Trump has told advisors and friends in recent months that he wants the Justice Department to investigate one-time officials and allies who have become critical of his time in office. So, who's he targeting? Former Chief of, Caf- uh, former Chief of Staff John Kelly, former Attorney General Bill Barr, former lawyer Ty Cobb, former Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley, President Biden, Biden's family, and a list of FBI agents and DOJ officials and anybody else he can think of. Trump's DOJ would function with the express purpose of indicting, imprisoning, and punishing perceived Trump enemies. And don't think it would stop just at the government. Trump reportedly also wants to invoke the Insurrection Act on his first day in office to allow him to deploy the military against civil demonstrations. Anything like the George Floyd protests, you know, the ones that took place all over America with people of all colors, Free Palestine protests and the Women's March. They could be greeted by the U.S. military and squashed with lethal force. Guess who was in charge of drafting that plan? Jeffrey Clark, the low-level Trump DOJ lawyer who pressured his superiors to investigate non-existent election crimes and urged state officials to submit phony certificates to the Electoral College. Joining me now is Peter Strzok, former deputy assistant director for the FBI. Peter, thank you so much for joining me this evening. I I, I want to start with this. I I don't like Trump fear-mongering. I don't like saying, oh, God, the terrible things, blah, 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 blah. But I do think it's important for us to understand how the administrative state in America is supposed to work and that people like Steve Bannon using Trump have been after our administrative state and American bureaucracy because that's their goal to destroy any and all the guardrails. Sort of put this in the larger philosophical context of how dangerous this is as a part of the overall current movement of the Republican organization. 
Um, Jason, I think that's a great point because it's extraordinarily dangerous. Look, part of the reason that the U.S. is able to operate as efficiently as it does is that we have a professional bureaucracy with a big B. You have civil servants, whether they're in the FBI, whether they're in the Forest Service or the USDA or anywhere else, and they take an oath of office to uphold the Constitution. They're not politically appointed. They're there and come in and do their job day in and day out professionally pursuing the interests of the American people. What Steve Bannon and a lot of these folks are doing are looking to replace as many people as they can, career officials, with political appointees to do exactly what you're talking about, to turn it, rather than a professional system of governance, into a, a patronage system where people are rewarded based on their political loyalties and specific loyalty to Donald Trump. And I think what is particularly worrisome in this article and what we saw in the last Trump administration is that they wasted a lot of time at the beginning, not under Understanding that if they were going to put people into positions of power, that they needed to move quickly. And the second point is, I think that they failed to appreciate the importance of key positions, like the Secretary of Defense, like the Attorney General, like the Director of the FBI. And they've learned those lessons, and it sure seems like they're planning to do things differently, given a second Trump administration. And, and, and here's the thing, Peter. You know, it's, it's national security issues, but even simple things like, like the FDA. Right. Food safety, uh, you know, things like uh, the Department of the Interior, you know, where land is drilled, where it's taken care of. Talk a little bit also about what happened in the few positions that Trump was able to replace during his administration when you put incompetent people into seemingly unimportant positions and then it spirals out into larger problems. Oh, absolutely. And I think you saw this across the board, whether it was, you know, people in charge of, you know, simple things like, you know, the 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 uh, Department of Homeland Security, for example, and when you put somebody in there that doesn't necessarily have a firm set of experience and put subordinates in place in their Office of Intelligence, and all of a sudden we have intelligence reports being created on media reporters, on people who are going out reporting the news, and suddenly those are being turned into intelligence reports and fed into uh, the system. When you have somebody like Rick Grinnell, who has absolutely no experience whatsoever in the intelligence community, being made the acting director of of, uh, national intelligence. These are the sorts of things that really break down the system and which not only cause problems at the top, but cause a disconnect between the professionals working for them who are trying to do their job, who are trying to get information up the chain. And suddenly that breaks down when it comes to informing the broader, the presidency, the matters of state and national security. So, I want to talk a little bit about some of his foreign policy and immigration plans should these folks get back into office. Obviously, they're going to try and sideline NATO. That ends up having a huge impact on what's happening in the Ukraine. That could have a huge impact all over the world. The Trump administration announced it no longer considered civilian Israeli settlements on Palestine lands a violation of international law. They want to end birthright citizenship. They want to empower the National Guard to carry out mass deportations and deny entry to legal immigrants based on their ideological beliefs. That's 3% of the population. What would it mean for a group of white nationalists somewhat more competent than before people operating under Trump to have that kind of control over border security, over national security and over immigration and citizenship in the United States? 
Well, I think it's concerning anytime you see Trump just recently mentioned that he was considering bringing back, if he's reelected, bringing back a Muslim travel ban. Anytime you right. see such extraordinary, extreme measures being put into place, we heard the last administration, some of his desire when he was just talking about building a wall at the southern border right. about whether or not it can include moats with alligators and snakes and things which were whether or not people could be shot at their knees to stop them from coming across the border. Anytime you have some sort of view like that, which remains. And then the second point is not only does it remain, but sort of what is as extreme as it was, the quote unquote adults in the room, the people like John Kelly, the people like Pat Cipollone, the people who served as guardrails, those aren't the people that are going to be placed into senior positions of the next Trump administration. Those folks aren't left anymore. So what you start with at the beginning, those senior advisors are the Jeff Clarks. They are people who have demonstrated you're not the team normal, but the team crazy that we heard about it during the January 6th hearing. They are the people who are sitting in the Oval Office between Sidney Powell and Mike Flynn and Patrick Byrne and Rudy Giuliani wheeling out outrageous yeah. theories. And they're not going to do it. Peter Strzok, thank you so very much. Still ahead, Election Day is upon us. A preview of some of the key races we'll be keeping a close eye on tomorrow. More when we get back on The Readout. Tomorrow at this very hour, polls will be closing or about to close in significant bellwether races. In Ohio, voters will decide whether or not to enshrine abortion rights in their constitution. They'll also vote on legalizing marijuana. In Kentucky, the governor's race is a test of whether voters are more motivated by abortion rights or their support for Donald Trump. In the Mississippi governor's race, Democrat Brandon Presley is doing much better than expected with Republican incumbent Tate Reeves dealing with a major corruption scandal. And in Virginia, school board races will determine whether the far right is in charge of what children learn in school, while control of the state legislature could determine if it remains the last Southern refuge for abortion rights. Joining me now to discuss is MSNBC correspondent Shaq Brewster, who is in Lexington, Kentucky. Shaq, great to see you. Love the jean jacket sort of action thing you got going on. That's great. Uh, so, Shaq, <laughs> here's my question. Um, I think that this race in Kentucky is way more important than sometimes the attention being put into it. But it's interesting because it doesn't seem like it's ever been all that close. Um, what is it like on the ground? Are people nervous? Are Democrats nervous? Are Daniel Cameron's people saying they think they've got some hidden silent majority there? Because most of the numbers that I've seen suggest that uh, Andy Brashear is going to get reelected. Well, Jason, you said the word nervous, and that is the same word that I'm hearing from voters on the ground on both sides of this. When you talk to the campaigns, they both say that they're feeling good, but they both acknowledge that the result will be close. You're hearing that from Andy Bashir's campaign. He just wrapped up an event here in Lexington. He's having another one in Louisville later tonight. Big crowd here. He says he's feeling good. They feel like they're seeing positive indicators. But the concern that you have for his supporters is that you're hearing the same exact thing from Daniel Cameron and his campaign team and the energy that you're seeing on their side of it. The big issue here is whether or not a popular governor like Andy Bashir can overcome those negative national trends that you're seeing. 
President Biden's low approval ratings, for example, whether or not a popular governor can overcome that in a state that Donald Trump won by 26 points. You mentioned abortion is also a factor in this race. Daniel Cameron struggling to really lay out his abortion position until late into the campaign. Bashir saying that uh, he will protect or do what he can to protect or expand the abortion access that folks have in Kentucky. Right now, there's a near total ban on the procedure. So lots of issues at play, but really this is a test of how a popular governor can perform with those national headwinds. Two quick questions about Ohio. You've got abortion on the ballot. You've also got marijuana on the ballot. Which one do people seem to think is driving voters more? Yeah, you know, our reporters on the ground say that it is definitely the abortion issue that people are really mobilized around. Of course, marijuana uh, legalization, especially at a recreational level, that is something that uh, people are going to the polls on. But it's the abortion issue that has been the focus for voters for some time. Remember, many of these voters had to go to the polls back in August on this exact issue. It was also called issue one. For then, it was about raising the threshold for a constitutional amendment. Now they're voting directly on the constitutional amendment and whether or not abortion rights should be enshrined in the state's constitution. Their polling looks good for that side. But again, this is a conservative state and this is a, a, an issue that has been top of mind for many voters. So it's definitely something to watch. 15 minutes ago, Ohio was a swing state. Now it's red. Shaq Brewster, thank you so much for joining us tonight on The Readout. <laughs> New polling, one year out from the presidential elections, leading to some Democratic wringing of hands and gnashing of teeth. Why I believe it's much ado about nothing after this on The Readout with Jason Johnson. Tomorrow's elections will be important bellwethers on abortion rights looking ahead to 2024. But a new poll has national Democrats hand-wringing about President Biden's chances for re-election a year out. New York Times Siena College poll shows Donald Trump leading in five of six battleground states that candidate Biden won in 2020. In a statement, Biden's campaign noted that predictions more than a year out tend to look a little different than a year later. And that's true. In fact, in November 2011, the New York Times asked, is Obama toast when President Obama was trailing in the polls? As we all know, he was handily reelected the next year. Joining me now to discuss is Cornell Belcher, Democratic pollster, strategist, and MSNBC political analyst, and Victor Xi, co-host of the iGen Politics podcast. Cornell, I will start with you. I am putting on my political scientist hat. I don't pay attention to any polls that take place more than six months out from an election. I think there's too much that can happen, but that's just me. What do you see when you look at these polls? When you've dug into the numbers, are you worried? Do you think this is going to be an issue for Biden a year out? Well, there's a couple of things here. One, it is, to your point earlier, it is deja vu for me because, you know, someone was working on Obama re-election in 2012. In 2011, I was having these same conversations about about then President Obama running behind uh, Mitt Romney and being tied, as you might remember in some places, with uh, Michelle right. Bachman. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, so yeah, I have to take with a grain of salt. What, what you do see in these polls, and, and this is the important part of these polls to me, is, look, Donald Trump, we've seen in two past elections where Donald Trump's ceiling is. 
Uh, And if you look in the internals of these polls, he's about uh, right now performing exactly the way he did uh, in 20 and 2020. His support sticks with him. It's energized. It it doesn't move as he can. He said, I can shoot someone and not lose any support. Apparently, you can also be indicted some 90 some times and not lose any support. And and that's what we're seeing. Newsflash. Almost every voter who voted for 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 Trump is going to vote for him again. What you also see on the other end of this is what we saw on the Obama campaign, and this is why you build campaigns. It is Democrats are overly, well, I won't say overly. Democrats are really heavily dependent on younger voters and a younger, more diverse uh, electorate. Barack, Barack Obama does not become president with about eleven percent of the electorate being new voters in twenty in two thousand eight, and they look you know, disproportionately younger and more diverse electorate. That Obama continuum is is really critical for them. So when you look at the numbers, I actually look in the internals of of this poll and understand that that Donald Trump is probably at his ceiling. Uh, Biden right. is probably at his floor, which I think is important and and sort of campaign to build. And this is another piece of this I think is important is when I actually I was actually heartened when I saw this number because they do have a, a sizable sh- uh, swath of, I think, of, of regular sort of likely voting white voters. And you know where uh, Biden is with white voters right now? He's at 39 percent. Why am I not worried? Why, why am I heartened by that? Right. Because as you and I both know, at max, he's going to get 41 percent of the white vote. Right. So, exactly. So he's actually not far off of where his white vote is. But when you look in the internals where he's got to make up a lot of ground are not voters who are necessarily going to break for, 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 for Donald Trump. But they're they're disillusioned, disengaged Democrats, just like we had in 2011. So he has. So I think he has a lot of work to do. So that's what I take from the polls. All right, Victor, I'm going to take this to you because everybody is concerned about young voters. And and what I am hearing when I talk to my students at Morgan State, when I, I look online, one of the things that young voters are concerned about, yes, they care about abortion. Yes, they care about student loans. But the conflict in Israel has also been something that seems like has become a drag on young voters. You literally have got, what was it? I, I saw Swifties for Palestine and the Israeli government, like Taylor's, like people are asking Taylor Swift to get involved in an international conflict because they think it has some influence on young people. Where does the current international crisis play out when it comes to young voters? Are, are people still going to care? Are people under 30 still going to care in February? Or do you think this is sort of a temporary moment of frustration and, and people will come back to voting for Biden in 2024? I mean, there is no question about that, that there is a lot of passion around this issue. I'm mm-hmm. at UCLA and there's a lot of people talking about this issue, this issue on campus. But here's what I think is going to be important for 2024. The contrast is, I think, is what's going to be really important. You have Joe Biden, who's listening to these communities. He this week, he enacted two really important things, which is first combating anti-Semitism, but also establishing this first ever nationwide task force to combat Islamophobia. I think those things are going to be really important. He did we, both. He I did want both. us to be yes. clear. He did yes. both. For those people who don't think that Joe right. Biden is doing something, yes, continue. He did both. What, meanwhile, Donald Trump is fanning the flames of hatred and division. He said, you know, Hezbollah is, is you know, he praised Hezbollah. He also uh, is anti-Semitic in many of his remarks on Truth Social. So I think that contrast will be really important. But here's what I'll add to what Cornell said. He was spot on, which is Joe Biden already built a coalition in 2020. He beat Donald Trump in 2020 with a younger base, with a more diverse base, and he's doing the work as we head into 2024. Um, Vice President Harris is doing phenomenal work right now, going around the co- going around to college, college campuses and really listening to young voters. And I think what, as we approach 2024, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to keep on doing that. They're going to fight hard to earn the votes of young voters and diverse voters. And that's what I think is going to be really important as we head into election day. 
Cornell, so one of the other things that I, I, I look at heading into this campaign season is usually the kinds of bumps that we would expect. I don't know that I think those are going to happen this year. This is the first time in my lifetime, your lifetime, everybody, everybody here's lifetime, where we kind of already know who both of the nominees are going to be, right? Like half those Republicans are going to drop out if they even get to Iowa. We know Trump is going to be the nominee, even if he's, you know, dressed like the Hamburglar in white and black stripes. I mean, the guy is still going to be the nominee for the Republican Party. So where are going to be the inflection moments? polling wise going forward, because it's it's not going to be a big coronation uh, when Trump gets the nomination. It's not going to be a big deal when Joe Biden gets the nomination. Where do you think the inflection points will be? I'm not so sure there's going to be a lot of infl- uh, in- inflection points. But let me say this. Let me, let me take a moment to say this. Look, I, I, it's nauseating hearing Democrats uh, wring their hands uh, about Joe Biden, because to a certain extent, you, you know, I remember in, going in 2011 when and when people said Barack Obama shouldn't re- run for re-election. There was articles right. and, op- and op-eds being run saying Barack Obama shouldn't run for re-election. It is nauseating that, that that's continues to happen from 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 progressives. But it's also a point here where they underestimate Joe Biden. Gotta be quick, Cornell. Gotta be quick. He was right. He wasn't supposed to win. He wasn't supposed to win the primary. He did. He wasn't supposed to. He he won the presidential election by seven, eight million voters. And he had a great midterm despite all the the, all the all the naysayers. They keep he's like DJ Khaled. They keep underestimating (laughs) disrespecting. All right. Cornell Belcher Belcher and Victor Shee, thank you guys so much for joining us tonight on The Readout. Here on MSNBC, we are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.